Hello and welcome to History of Ancient Greece podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Rob. And we are from Totalis Rankium, Roman Emperor's Totalis Rankium. Yeah. If you're listening, that's because you like history. Well done you. History's good, especially yes. ancient. We rate every single Roman Emperor that ever existed, sort of, from Augustus to Augustus. We yeah. rate their fighting skills. <laughs> the, how crazy they were. Ah, that chicken! How successful were they? Oh yeah, money. What did they look like? <whistles> Do you want to whistle a bit louder? Yeah. <laughs> <whistles> oh, I shouldn't mark, I can't whistle at all. And how long did they last? And also, where they have a certain je ne César. Yeah. So if you are interested in Roman history and you want to break from this fantastic Greek history podcast, yes. come on over and check us out. It'll be great. After all, what, what have the Greeks done? <laughs> yeah, apart from, you know, medicine. Democracy. And, oh, triangle. They invented triangle. Triangles are good, aren't they? Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And if you're listening to this in the future, because you're either an alien or just in the future, and you don't like Roman history... American Presidents Totalus Rankium. Yes, our second series is coming soon, so if you wait a little while, you can check that out. In the meantime, enjoy Ryan's take on Imperial Athens. We're enjoying it, and so are you. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 43, Imperial Athens. Athens was riding high in the mid-450s BC, after several successes against the Corinthians, Epidarians, Agenetans, and Boeotians on both land and sea. They had fought several battles on numerous fronts and appeared to be flexing their muscle in the Aegean region. They were so emboldened by their success that they had sent a fleet to aid the Egyptians in their revolt against Persia, sent another fleet to ravage the coast of the Peloponnese, and sent the army to defeat the Boeotians and thus gain control of central Greece. Where we last left off, though, fortune stopped smiling on the Athenians, and they were reeling from what turned out to be a disastrous Egyptian expedition forcing them to tighten their control over their territorial holdings. At the same time, they moved the League's treasury from Delos to the Athenian Acropolis and would spend the greater part of the next decade bringing back in those who had revolted against the League. The hostilities with the Peloponnesians was not abated either, and Athens was technically still in a state of war with the Persians. This all looms in the backdrop in the late 450s BC. In 453 BC, 
Pericles continued what Ptolemides had started two years earlier by leading a naval expedition into the Corinthian Gulf, where the Athenians had just finished an alliance the previous year with the Achaean cities on the southern coastline, which was an additional blow to Corinthian western trade. Well, Pericles followed that up by attacking Sicyon. But having failed to take Sicyon, he then tried to conquer Oneidae, an important and strong-walled city on the Acarnanian coastline, but was unsuccessful there too, and so he was forced to return to Athens. Although no military success was gained, the expedition created a sensation, and it seems to have led to the adhesion of the Achaean cities to the Athenian alliance. The Athenians' second campaign that year, though, did not have consequences as successful. The Athenians had responded to a call for assistance from Orestes, the king of Thessaly, to restore him after he was exiled. And so, together with their Boeotian and Phocian allies, the Athenians marched north into Thessaly. The two sides met at Pharsalus, but the Athenians were unable to neutralize the devastating effects of the Thessalian cavalry, and thus were defeated and forced to return to Athens. Meanwhile, Erythrae, an Ionian city in Asia Minor, revolted from the League. At Erythrae, there had been a political struggle between Delian League loyalists and Medizers, who supported a pro-Persian policy, and it was the latter who gained the upper hand. And so they revolted and established a pro-Persian tyranny. The Athenians managed to put down the revolt rather easily, though, in 452 BC, and then they placed hard regulations on the Erythraeans. In fact, we have epigraphic evidence of this, the so-called Erythrae Decree, which states that the Athenians imposed a democratic constitution and a clerochy upon them. Some scholars believe that this revolt had occurred because of the Athenian disaster at Egypt, and as such, the Athenians needed to implement a tough, imperialistic solution to deter future revolts. Athenian episkopoi, or overseers, were dispatched to organize the establishment of their democracy and were aided by the Phroarchus, or garrison commander. Other scholars argue that the primary purpose of the military garrison was to provide protection from Persia and should not be seen as an intensification of Athenian rule, at least not at this point. In the same way, the political role of the Phroarchus was to vet incoming political participants for covert pro-Persian sympathizers, who may have escaped the immediate purge after Erythrae's recovery by the Athenians. Furthermore, unlike later decrees, which we will mention shortly, the Delian League allies were mentioned in the oath. It reads, quote, The people are to swear the following. I will not revolt from the Athenian people nor from the allies of the Athenians." End quote. Concurrently, Miletus revolted too until the Athenians also drove out the Persian-backed tyrants that same year. They were returned to the League in 451 BC, but a democratic constitution and military garrison wasn't imposed on them, like at Erythrae. However, the Milesian magistrates were forced to govern jointly with five Athenian archons, for the time being at least. At the same time, though, we see an Athenian decree praising Sigium on the Hellespont for its continuing loyalty and promise them protection against anyone on the mainland, presumably not only a reference to the Persians, but also to pro-Persian Greeks. Furthermore, in 451 BC, famine rocked Attica. And so, all these different things that were happening, 
the rebellions and the famine, led the Athenians to change their stance in a very significant way. According to Plutarch, returning from his 10 years of ostracized exile in 451 BC, Cimon seems to have come to an understanding with his rival, Pericles, that he would assume his old position as the leader of the Athenian military and thus resume his efforts to make war on Persia and keep the peace with Sparta, but he would not interfere with any domestic policies that Pericles had implemented. Those policies will be discussed in a future episode. The historian Donald Kagan believes that this power-sharing deal would only have been successful if Cimon adapted himself to the new conditions and promoted a political marriage between Periclean liberals and Cimonian conservatives. Other scholars have suspected that Elpeniki, Cimon's half-sister and the wife of Callias, had much to do with bringing to pass the reconciliation. She was indeed a colorful person, one of the very few Athenian women of this era who are more than shadows to us. Regardless, Cimon immediately set about to negotiate a five-year truce with the Spartans, with the understanding that the purpose of the truce was to allow negotiation to go forward, to bring about a long-term peace agreement between the two polis. As a sign of good faith, the Athenians abandoned their alliance with Argos, and in turn, Sparta and Argos concluded a 30 years peace of their own. During the five years peace from 451 to 446 BC, Athens also made alliances with Regium, which is on the toe of Italy at the important straits of Messana, and with Leontini, an Ionian city in Sicily that was the bitter enemy of Syracuse, a Dorian city that was a loyal colony of Corinth. The Athenian statesman and diplomat Callias may have been responsible for all three of these treaties. The Delian League had been doing a number on the island of Cyprus for almost 30 years, raiding Persian garrisons for booty, but not formally trying to establish a garrison there. After Megabysus quelled the rebellion in Egypt, he was sent up to Cyprus with his fleet to finally retaliate and reinforce the island in the late 450s BC. With the five years' truce freeing them from fighting in Greece, the Athenians were once again able to dispatch a fleet to Cyprus. So for 450 BC, Cimon was elected once again as one of the strategoi and immediately led an expedition of 200 ships to Cyprus. His objective was to undo the damage that was done by the disaster in Egypt. During their siege of the Cypriot city of Kition, however, Cimon either was wounded in battle and died of gangrene, or died from a sickness. The Athenians then dropped the siege of Kition and retreated to Salamis, that being the Salamis on Cyprus, apparently at the deathbed instructions of Cimon. His death was kept a secret from the army, though. Thirty days later, the fleet was attacked by a Persian force composed of Phoenicians, Cypriots, and Cilicians, while sailing off the coast of Salamis. Under the supposed command of the deceased Cimon, still unbeknownst to the troops, they defeated this force at sea, while the land forces simultaneously won a victory themselves on land, displaying their power in the east to quell the Ionian discontent. Having thus successfully extricated themselves, the Athenian fleet sailed back to Greece and took with them the body of Cimon. He was buried back in his home city, and a glorious monument was erected in his memory. He was an example of patriotism, 
shrewd purposefulness, and strategic genius. Although seemingly insignificant, these battles on Cyprus were the end of the Greco-Persian Wars. Cimon's removal from the political scene in Athens was significant for two reasons. He was the only politician who had the kind of support and charisma that could challenge the new important leader in Athens, Pericles. This was why Pericles, who was still at a relatively young age, was able to become a person of unprecedented influence and power in the Athenian state. It's not that he took on new constitutional powers or anything, but he could persuade the ecclesia to do whatever he wanted almost all of the time, with nobody to challenge him. Secondly, his death removed Athens' chief advocate of continuing war with Persia and of maintaining good relations with Sparta. Complicating the account of this period is the so-called Peace of Callias. Supposedly, in the spring of 449 BC, this peace officially ended the state of war between Athens and Persia that began with the conquest of the Asiatic Greeks in the mid-6th century BC. The Athenian, who was sent to Susa to negotiate with Artaxerxes, was once again Callias, hence the name of the treaty. Thucydides, though, doesn't mention anything about peace. But Diodorus, who was writing much later, described the peace terms as such. Quote, All the Greek cities of Asia are to be autonomous. The satraps of the Persians are not to come closer to the sea than a three days journey, and no Persian warship is to sail inside of Phaselis in Lycia or the Cyanean rocks on the eastern end of the Bosporus. And if these terms are observed by the king and his generals, the Athenians are not to campaign in the territory over which the king rules. End quote. Since the only sources for the treaty date to the 4th century BC and onward, modern scholars are split as to whether there really was a formal peace at this point. Some scholars have even argued that a peace was established after Eurymedon and after Artaxerxes came to the throne, as we mentioned last episode, and thus Athenian interventions in Egypt and Cyprus would have been violations of peace, and so a new peace had to be renegotiated. A further argument for the existence of a peace treaty is that the Athenians withdrew their fleet from Cyprus and didn't return, even though they had success. For over a decade, the winning of Cyprus had been one of the main objectives of Athenian policy. But now, the Greek cities of Cyprus were left to struggle with the Phoenicians on the island as best as they could. The Phoenicians soon enough would get the upper hand and would hold on to it for many years. They would try to extirpate Greek civilization from the island, but with little success, and we will see Greek dynasties once again in power in the near future. Donald Kagan believes that a formal peace was enacted. He also believes that Callias, the brother-in-law of Cimon, was employed by Pericles several times to negotiate these important agreements because of his skills as a negotiator and, more importantly, as a symbol of unity between the two political factions. The fate of Callias upon his return to Athens, though, remains a mystery, and information about his later years remains only fragmentary. Some sources allege that his mission to Artaxerxes was not successful and that he was indicted for high treason on his return to Athens and sentenced to a fine of 50 talents. Others claim that the Athenians dedicated an altar of peace and voted special honors to him. 
His son and his grandson would come to play prominent roles in the near future. Anyways, this only adds to the confusion, whether there was an official peace. Regardless whether it was official though, hostilities would not occur for almost four decades, so nobody questions that there was at least a de facto peace between the Athenians and their allies and the Persians. In his brief description of the 50 years between the two great wars, Thucydides' aim was to explain the growth of Athenian power and such a treaty, and the fact that the Delian allies were not released from their obligations after it, would have marked a major step towards outright Athenian imperialism. He writes that, quote, Peace raised questions about the continuation of the Delian League, organized to wage war against Persia and the payment of tribute, imposed against the barbarian, end quote, as the allies were not released from their obligations to provide either ships or money, despite the cessation of hostilities. And so, following this de facto peace, behind Pericles' guiding hand, Athens now began to act as an openly imperial city from 550 to 546 BC. The peace with Persia, however, was not followed by further Athenian expansion within the defined limits. Instead, we see Athens tightening their grip over those who were already under their dominion. At this point, Lesbos, Chios, and Samos were the only subjects left to contribute ships, while the rest paid their tribute in Phoros. To further Athens's grip on its empire, Pericles' imperialistic foreign policy advocated retaining tight control over their maritime allies and increasing Athenian prestige in Greece. In order to do that, the Athenian fleet, under Ptolemides, founded various clerukes to serve as military outposts in order to act as safeguards and to keep control of the empire's vast territory throughout the Aegean, such as those that were set up at Charistos, on the southern end of Euboea, or those on the islands of Naxos, Andros, Lemnos, and Imbros, as well as on the Thracian Chersonese. This policy clearly shows that the Athenians had no intention of releasing their control over their allies. The collection of tribute was remitted for one year throughout the Athenian Empire, and thus there is no tribute list to be had for 449-448 BC. However, it is generally believed that the Athenians had declared a postponement in the collecting of Phoros until a policy for the future was decided upon. And so, in the late spring of 449 BC, Pericles proposed what modern scholars call the Congress Decree in which he called for a Panhellenic Congress to discuss a variety of questions, particularly how they should keep the promises that were made after the Persian War to rebuild the temples to the gods that had been destroyed, so that they could give owed sacrifices to the gods. Since those that had been destroyed were essentially all in Attica, the Athenians were apparently hoping to bring all of the Greeks into the picture to help pay for the costs of restoring those temples. Furthermore, apart from their attempt to claim the religious leadership of Greece, the main objective, though, was to provide a new mandate for the Delian League, aka the Athenian Empire, and for the collection of Phoros. The invitation did not go to the west, for the Italian and Sicilian Greeks were not directly concerned with the Persian Wars, but it went to all the cities of mainland Greece, and to the cities and islands which belonged to the Athenian Empire. And so, Although Pericles invited all of the Greeks, 
It is thus hardly surprising that the Spartans and their allies refused to attend. There is some debate whether Pericles even expected that the Spartans would show up, or was this just his way of making it clear that even though the Spartans and the other Peloponnesian Greeks would not participate in these activities, Athens would keep their promises to the gods, providing justification for his expensive building program that gave Athens a much-needed facelift. However, it seems hard to believe that Pericles did not foresee this outcome, but instead he knew that the failure of the Congress to found a new Panhellenic League gave him the opportunity to keep the old Delian League in operation, and thus he could reimpose Phoros for 448-447 BC. And so, Athens nonetheless went ahead, and in June that year, Pericles proposed a decree to transfer 5,000 talents from the league treasury to finance his building program, and 3,000 talents were to be taken up to the Acropolis into the treasury of Athena in annual installments of 300. The so-called Periclean building program may have been a way to alleviate unemployment during times of peace as well. Regardless, it included the Parthenon, the Temple of Athena Nike, the Propylaea, and the Hephaestion in Athens, as well as the Temple of Poseidon at Sunion and the Telestrion at Eleusis. We will discuss these remarkable achievements of classical architecture in greater detail in a future episode. And so, with the normal system of tribute having resumed in 448-447 BC, the events of that year give clear evidence of widespread discontent. A considerable number of cities brought no tribute, others paid only part of what was due, and others paid late. As a result, the tribute list for 447-446 BC includes not only a normal number of contributions, but also back payments by the defaulters of the previous year. Furthermore, there is a series of exceptionally tough Athenian decrees, whose dating is a subject of scholarly debate but it's clear that the Athenians took tough, coercive action against their dissident allies, who resented the reimposition of Phoros after a year break, and against Athenian imperial behavior, and thus they revolted from the empire. The harshness of Athenian imperialism in this period is reflected in these three decrees, the Colophon Decree, the Miletus Decree, and the Halkis Decree. We can also throw in the previously mentioned Erythrae decree if you believe it was a consequence of harsh Athenian imperialism rather than protection against Persia. There were probably more than this, but these are the decrees which we physically have on the archaeological record. Anyways, Colophon was listed as paying Phoros in the first five tribute lists from 454 to 450 BC, but is absent from the tribute lists until 447-446 BC, which strongly suggests that it had been in revolt the entire time. However, the Athenians were able to finally put down the rebellion and then sent out clerics and established a democracy, just like at Erythrae previously. The oath contained within the decree states, quote, I will not revolt from the Athenian people, either by word or deed, neither nor will I be persuaded to do so by anyone else. And I will love the Athenian people, and I will not desert, nor subvert the democracy at Colophon, nor be persuaded to do so by anyone else. End quote. As you can see, the oath is far tougher than the Erythrae decree, demanding loyalty in word and deed, and thus limiting freedom of speech. 
Also around that time, the Milesians revolted for a second time. After they were put down, they were treated to the same conditions as Erythrae and Colophon. Furthermore, two Athenian colonies are known from this period. One was Thurai, a special Panhellenic colony in the West that we will discuss in more detail in a future episode. And the other was Berea, believed to have been founded in 447-446 BC. This colony is only known from an inscription that preserves some of the regulations governing its foundation. It is specifically laid down that the colonists were to be drawn from the Zugatai and Thetes. Provision is made for the distribution of land and the allocation of reservations for the gods. Unfortunately, this colony has no history and even its site is not beyond dispute. It was presumably in the Chersonese, intended to strengthen the Athenian position in the always economically important hinterland of Thrace, because one of the clauses of the decree prescribes that, quote, if anyone invades the colony's territory, the cities are to bring help as sharply as possible, according to the regulations laid down concerning the Thracian cities, end quote. This policy of overseas settlement strengthened Athens' hold on her empire, but it was strongly resented by their allies and would be included in all later attacks on Athenian imperialism. No less significant of Athens' imperial mood at this time is a decree involving Athenian coinage. In 447 BC, an Athenian man named Clearchus proposed a decree to close the mints in their allied states and enforce the use of standard Athenian coins, weights, and measures throughout the empire. Not much is known about him, but the proposal passed in the Ecclesia, and so the decree was thus named after him. Modern scholars also refer to it as the coinage decree. Anyways, as a result, every city in the Delian League had to bring their silver coinage to the mint at Athens for conversion into Athenian silver coinage. The decree was set up in stone in the agora of each city by the local magistrates. The decree, though, hasn't been found in its entirety and can be somewhat reconstructed from various fragments found in several of the allied cities. The Athenians, though, clearly anticipated the reluctance of all of their allies in carrying this out, as one fragment reads, quote, The Athenians are to see to this, if the cities themselves are not willing. End quote. The language in which it is written is blatantly imperialistic. It is not easy to establish what economic benefits this decree bestowed upon the Athenians, apart from the obvious advantages that all future foros payments to Athens would be in Athenian silver coinage and minting fees. Certainly, it would have been easier for the Athenian fleet, which constantly needed to buy all kinds of supplies throughout the Aegean, if there was a uniform coinage to purchase these commodities. However, the decree did not establish a common currency, as the Electrum coins of Cyzicus, although they were no longer minted, continued to be used in great numbers throughout the empire. Also, unlike the modern euro, for example, there were no great economic benefits arising from a common currency, since the actual, as opposed to the nominal, value of the coins was reflected in the quality and worth of their metal. This decree almost certainly was just a piece of blatant imperialism, with Athens exercising control simply for the sake of it, although there would be the added political benefit of the coins, serving as propaganda for the power of Athens throughout the Aegean. 
Also in 447 BC, another Athenian man, this one named Clinius, proposed a decree tightening up tribute collection throughout the empire by laying down a strict procedure for the transport of Phoros to Athens. If we accept this dating, then he may possibly be the Clinias that was the father of Alcibiades. If we don't, then he was someone else who, like Clearchus, we have no further information on. Anyways, the decree reads, quote, The council and the magistrates in the cities and the inspectors, the episcopoi, should look after the collection of tribute every year and bring it to Athens. They are to make identification tokens for the cities to prevent those who bring the tribute from committing offenses. The city is to write on a tablet the amount of the tribute which it is sending and then seal it with the identification token before it sends it back to Athens. Those who bring the tribute are to give the tablet to the council to read whenever they hand over the tribute. If anyone commits an offense over the bringing of the cow or panoply, indictment and punishment are to follow the same procedure. End quote. This system of Foros recording tablets and identification tokens ensured there could be no claims by Foros payers that the correct amount had been dispatched, but a part had been lost in transit. A short tribute list would note the absentees and partial payments, and all prosecutions for those failing to provide their full amount of foros were to be conducted initially before the boule, and then before the heliai. Also, the last sentence in the decree implies that all colonies and subject allies were now required to bring cow and panoply as sacrifice to the greater Panathenia, held every four years, and failure to do so was treated to the same degree of seriousness as a tribute offense. For the Clearchus and Clinias decrees, scholars have often accepted that they were written around the same time because they have close parallels in their tone and language. However, some scholars believe that they also could have been written at some point in the 420s BC. In all honesty, though, they can fit into the narrative either way, and even if these two decrees were not passed in 447 BC, the Athenians by that point had already put into place all of the necessary means of control by which they could govern their empire. A fleet that was virtually Athenian, the Clarukis, the garrisons, the resident Athenian officials, the imposed constitutions, the oaths of loyalty, the judicial interference, and the ending of league meetings on Delos. Most Athenian citizens were naturally attracted by a policy of expansion, which made their city great and powerful, without extracting heavy sacrifices from themselves. The day had not yet come when they were unwilling to undertake military service, and they were content as long as the cost of maintaining the empire did not tax their purses. The empire, after all, benefited their trade and increased their prosperity. The average Athenian citizen did not see his freedom hindered any at all, even though he was willing to press the yoke of his city upon the necks of other poles. And so, as long as the profits of empire were many and its burdens were light, the Athenian democracy turned a blind eye and adopted the imperialism of Pericles. The firmness of Athens to its allies in the years immediately following peace with Persia ultimately helped them survive the crisis that was about to follow, and thus there was no disintegration of their empire. Meanwhile, back at Sparta, the five-year truce was also most welcome. Since the late 470s BC, 
Sparta had endured one of its most difficult and dangerous periods in their history, and their military supremacy in the Peloponnese was on the brink of disaster. And so, credibility amongst their allies was at stake. Thus, even the Spartan hawks probably saw this period as a valuable breathing space before another inevitable fight with the Athenians. In this situation, the Spartan doves would have become increasingly more alarmed with the Athenian land empire, which undermined the foundations of their dual hegemony. In addition, as we mentioned earlier, the truce allowed the Spartans to make peace with the Argives. The fact that this was a 30-year truce, and not another 5-year truce, clearly reveals the underlying intentions of the Spartans. When the truce with the Athenians expired, they would have renewed strength and be free to attack them without any fear of Argive intervention. In the summer of 449 BC, and two years after the peace truce had been negotiated, Sparta tested its strength by attacking the city of Phocis in central Greece. They engaged in what is called a sacred war by taking back control of the Delphic Oracle and the Temple of Apollo from the neighboring Phocians and handing it over to the Delphians. Historians would label this as the Second Sacred War. We discussed the first one that involved Cleisthenes of Sicyon and the Polis of Kira in episode 16. Well, the Spartans defeated the Phocians and then went home. The next year, in 448 BC, Pericles finally responded to Sparta's sacred war by leading an army up north against the Delphians. Since the Athenians were allies of Phocis and had placed them in control of Delphi a decade earlier, they once again took back the Delphic Oracle and restored it to the Phocians. While this sacred war was not technically a breach of the five years' truce, these are signals that the truce was not really working. And sure enough, two years later in 446 BC, that upset the peace and balance that the Greek world had found temporarily. Although the war was officially undertaken to restore Delphi to its inhabitants, it also gave the Spartans an acceptable excuse to intervene in central Greece, and according to Thucydides, to spread anti-Athenian propaganda. And so the events in 446 BC appear not to be coincidental. First of all, some of the men exiled from Boeotia after the Athenian victory at Onophytae a decade earlier had returned home and began to take back some of the Boeotian towns. The result was an oligarchic rebellion throughout the major cities of Boeotia, such as Orchomenus and Caronia, and naturally, they drove out the pro-Athenian democratic regimes and Boeotia became hostile to Athens once again. There was a big argument in Athens as to what should be done in response. Pericles advocated that they did not do anything, since they couldn't afford to engage in ground campaigns against the Boeotians. Against him was Tolmides, another leading Athenian general at that time. The Athenians, though, were angry and were persuaded by Tolmides, and thus he led an expedition into Boeotia to take back the recaptured towns and get the situation under control. Along with him were a thousand hoplites, plus other troops from their allies. He managed to capture Caronia with little force, enslaved the inhabitants, and installed an Athenian garrison, though he did not attempt to do the same to Orchomenus, for whatever reason. But on their return to Athens, the Athenian army was ambushed and annihilated at Caronia by Boeotian, Locrian, and Euboean exiles. 
Furthermore, Tolmides was killed in the battle, as well as the aforementioned Clinius, the father of Alcibiades. The number is not provided, but those hoplites who weren't killed were taken as prisoners. In order to recover what little of their prisoners that had survived, Athens was forced to evacuate Boeotia, which was lost for good at that point. Also, the loss of Phocis and Locris followed with oligarchic ascendancy in those states. And so, according to Thucydides, because of their defeat at Coronia, they had essentially undid the work of the Battle of Onophytae. And so after 11 years, the Athenian land empire in central Greece had collapsed. Although it was a humiliating defeat, the loss of Boeotia wasn't necessarily a big blow for the Athenians, because long-term hold of the region would have put a constant strain on Athens' military resources, and so it would not have been conducive to their maritime empire. This defeat at Coronia, however, triggered a more dangerous disturbance closer to home. Seeing that the Athenians were vulnerable, two of their important allies took advantage of this opportunity, and here too, oligarchical parties were probably at work. First, there was a rebellion on the island of Euboea. Seeing this as a threat to Athenian control of the sea, because if they succeeded, it would encourage other rebellions, Pericles personally led an army into Euboea coming down from the Thracian Chersonese and Imbros, where he had just established Clarukis. While he was gone with his army, off in Euboea, there was also a second rebellion, this one in Megara. Their alliance with Megara was always a very tenuous situation, since Megara and Athens had been bitter enemies for centuries, and so the alliance was an unnatural one. And now, the situation had become very dangerous for Athens, because Megara succeeded in overthrowing the Athenian garrison with the help of Corinth, Sicyon, and Epidaurus. Now the Athenians had no protection from a Spartan land invasion, and right on cue, the Spartan king Pleistoanax, with his advisor, Cleandridus, marched the army towards Attica. The nearby Athenians fled to the city of Athens to hide behind their long walls. Pericles raced his army back from Euboea to Athens to unite his forces with the troops that had been chased out of Megara, which were under the command of Andocades. These forces were guided to safety by a Megarian man named Pythion, and the gratitude of the troops, whom he saved by leading them from Pegae through Boeotia to Athens, was recorded on his funeral monument. The stone has survived, and the verses written upon it are a strong reminiscence of this moment of great peril for Athens. And so, the combined Athenian army then marched to meet the Peloponnesian army, which was ravaging the Attic countryside near Eleusis. However, when the two armies met and faced each other on the Thiracian plain, and battle was about to happen, all of a sudden, a delegation came out from the Spartan army. Pericles went out to meet them. They had a little conversation and then all went back to their armies. Then, Pleistoanax marched the Spartan army back home to Sparta without fighting. This unexpected turn of events begs two questions. Why did the Spartans retire when they had the Athenians at their mercy? And even if there was no desire to destroy Athens, why would they retire so quickly? A defeat of the Athenian army and a prolonged siege of Athens would have helped Euboea to consolidate their revolt and also would have encouraged Athens' subject allies to revolt as well. 
At the very least, it would have strengthened Sparta's bargaining position at any future peace negotiations. The answer to many as to why the Spartans left was obvious. Pleistoanax had been bribed by Pericles. According to Plutarch, later when Pericles was audited for the handling of public money, a sum of ten talents was not sufficiently justified. Since the official documents mentioned that it was spent for a, quote, very serious purpose, end quote, basically meaning bribery. The auditors, knowing exactly what that was for, approved it without an official investigation. Regardless, once again, both sides agreed upon a four-month truce for the purpose of negotiating a permanent peace. During this four-month truce, with the Spartan threat removed, Pericles crossed back over to Euboea with 50 ships and 5,000 soldiers and crushed the revolt, inflicting a stringent punishment on the inhabitants of Halkis, taking away their property and claiming it as Athenian property. It's probably at this point that we can date the Halkis Decree. The oath contained within it is far more detailed than those given at Erythrae and Colophon. It states, quote, I will not revolt from the people of Athens by any means or device whatsoever, neither in word nor in deed, nor will I obey anyone who does revolt, and if anyone revolts I will denounce him to the Athenians, and I will be the best and fairest ally I am able to be, and will help and defend the Athenian people in the event of anyone wronging the Athenian people, and I will obey the Athenian people." Not only do the Halkidians swear to avoid revolt in both word and deed, but they even agree to betray their fellow citizens to the Athenians if they should have rebellious ideas. In addition, there is an explicit promise to help the Athenians in the event of an attack. Similar situations probably occurred in other Euboean cities, but we only have the Halkis Decree. Also, the city of Histiaea was dealt with particularly harshly. Pericles captured the city and expelled the Histiaeans as punishment for their butchering of an entire crew of an Athenian trireme. The Macedonian king, Perdiccas II, the son of Alexander, who ruled from 454 to 413 BC, welcomed these refugees into his kingdom. Pericles then refounded Oreos on the site of Histiaea with 2,000 Athenian clerooks. Although the Eubians were dealt with harshly, the alarm of the Athenians after the Euboean revolt is reflected in widespread reductions of tribute, which they allowed to their subject states, as they feared that the example of Euboea might spread. Meanwhile, the Spartan hawks and the Garosia reacted furiously against Pleistoanax, wondering why he didn't clobber the Athenians when he had the chance. They finally took action against him and against his advisor, Cleondridus, and fined them so heavily that they were unable to pay and thus were forced to flee into exile. So angry were they at this lost opportunity. However, the Spartans oddly still didn't march into Attica then and try to force a battle. Money may have changed hands then too, but it seems too simple an explanation. More convincing is that a deal was struck between the two leaders. Pericles had convinced Pleistoanax of something that was essentially true, and after the Spartans cooled down, they realized that their exiled king was being wise. If they fought again, the outcome would more than likely have been the same. The Spartans would win, but would take a lot of casualties in the process, and no strategic consequences would come of it because the Athenians now have their long walls, the third of which were completed that year. 
And so, the Athenians could hide behind their walls, and the Spartans wouldn't be able to touch them, since their fleet dominated the sea, meaning the Spartan army could ravage the countryside all they wanted, but the Athenians still could get all the grain that they needed through imports. This realization must have come to the Spartans, because the four-month truce was successful and led to a non-aggression pact between Athens on behalf of its allies and Sparta on behalf of its allies, known as the Thirty Years' Peace, which was concluded over the winter of 446-445 BC. The Athenians had overextended themselves by fighting at the same time with the Persian Empire and the Peloponnesian League, and their naked imperialism had also made them unpopular. So they were in no position to dictate terms, and the arrangements of peace compelled Athens to give up all of their land holdings on the continent outside of the Aegean Sea, except for Agina and Naupactus, which they would continue to leave in the hands of the Helots. This included Megara, with its two ports at Nisiae and Pegae, Achaea, and Troezen. This effectively ended their land empire, but their maritime empire remained secure from Spartan interference. For example, Agina still remained under Athenian control. Also, by officially naming the Athenians with their allies in this treaty, the Spartans tacitly recognized and granted the illegitimacy of the Athenian Empire. Furthermore, they laid down a few rules meant to prevent the outbreak of war in the future, looking back to how this war started in the first place. Since this war came about because the ally of one side changed sides to the other, meaning Megara, it now was forbidden. Neither side was permitted to interfere with the allies of the other. However, any Greek state not listed in the treaty as an ally of Athens or Sparta was free to choose to become an ally of either, though. Each hegemon was free to use force to resolve conflicts within their own alliance. Finally, the most remarkable and original clause in the treaty up to that point in history was that if in the future there were any disagreements or complaints between the two sides, these must be submitted to an arbitrator for a decision. Since this was very unusual and unheard of, it might have been orchestrated by Pericles' doing, because he had that kind of mind, very inventive and ready to find new ways to meet old problems. The middle years of the First Peloponnesian War marked the peak of Athenian power. Holding Boeotia and Megara on land, and dominating the sea with its fleet, the city had stood utterly secure from attack. But the events of the mid-440s BC destroyed this position. For all of their successes in the early part of the war, the Athenians had ended up staring defeat in the face due to mistakes in foreign policy, and only survived by the withdrawal of the Spartan forces. Pericles learned some very valuable lessons from the First Peloponnesian War, which helped him to shape future foreign policy decisions. Athens's power was based upon the sea, and therefore the maintenance of the sea empire had to be the greatest priority for Athens. Consequently, this naval power should not be put at risk in the future, either by pursuing a land empire or by undertaking major overseas naval campaigns while also waging war in Greece. It was a gloomy moment for the Athenians, and it must have required all the sensitivity and eloquence of Pericles to restore their shaken confidence and revive their drooping spirits. Although not all Athenians had given up their dreams of unipolar control of the Greek world, the peace treaty that ended the war laid out the framework for a bipolar Greece. 
both sides had found this war to be very unpleasant and uncomfortable, producing dangers and risks that neither had ever anticipated. And so, at the time the peace was made, both sides probably came to the realization that this war wasn't worth having. If this sentiment is true, then sustainable peace would have been possible, and thus the war that followed was not inevitable, although Thucydides seems to believe that it was. There will be more on that in a future episode. Furthermore, the people who made the treaty certainly were persuaded that peace was better than war. So at that point, it wasn't clear that there really needed to be war. But a series of events between 445 to 431 BC shattered the so-called 30 years peace to the point that it didn't last even half that long. But before we get there, We have a whole lot of political, cultural, social, and economic achievements of classical Athens to talk about. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 44, Democracy Under Pericles. (laughs) 